At the end of May 2001, American missionaries to the Philippines, Martin and Gracia Burnham, made the fateful decision to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary in a secluded resort on the island of Palawan. About four in the morning, there was pounding on the door, bang, 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 and at first I thought it was a drunk guard or something, and um, Martin kind of knew we were in trouble. And just as he got to the door, it burst open, and in came three guys with M16s, and I think one of them had a mask on. The masked men were Abu Sayyaf, a militant Muslim terrorist group with ties to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Along with 20 other guests, the Burnhams were forced from their room at gunpoint and taken many miles across the open sea to the Muslim stronghold of Basilan. For more than a year, the Burnhams were constantly on the move, living in primitive conditions in the jungle, evading capture from the Philippine military under the total control of their captors. They were the enemy, and we never forgot that they were the bad guys. But on the other hand, they were our family. They were the people that we'd lived with for a year and hiked with and starved with. And you got to know the personalities of the guys. Soon after the events of September 11th, the news media took greater notice of the plight of Martin and Gracia and kept their story in the national headlines. As a result, millions of people around the globe began praying diligently for their safe release. I had no idea the magnitude of how many were praying, but on towards the end, when things would be bad, I even remember that that last day of the um, June 7, that last gun battle. We'd been hiking, sat down for a rest, and I just looked over at Martin and I said, people are praying for us. And he said, I know it. We, we knew. Throughout their captivity, the Burnhams had lived through 16 different gun battles between the Abu Sayyaf and the Philippine military. On the afternoon of June 7th, over a year since their abduction, the bullets erupted once more. I dropped from the hammock, and before I even got to the ground, I was shot in the leg. And I kind of slid down the mountain. It was so steep. I slid down a little bit and came to rest beside Martin. And I looked over at him, and he was bleeding from his chest. During the gun battle, you know, the grenades were going off all around us and the shooting. But I just kept thinking every moment was my last moment. And um, sometime during that time, I just felt Martin's body just get real heavy, a heaviness. Tragically, Martin was killed during their fight. Gracia was rescued and returned home amidst a national spotlight. Was there no way Gracia or Martin could escape? Sean Hannity, welcome to the show. Good to have you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Well, it started as a romantic getaway for Martin and Gracia Burnham, American missionaries working in the Philippines. But for her first daytime interview, and I want to thank her for having the courage to be here today. Gracia, good to have you with us. Thank you. The outpouring of support was beyond anything Gracia could have imagined, especially at Martin's funeral. I still didn't realize the, how many people were involved and praying and would want to go to Martin's funeral. And I looked around in the crowd and I saw some of my friends from college there, saw some of our coworkers there. I thought, 
All my friends are here. It was a good day. Martin would have been proud of his funeral. Gracia wanted to honor Martin's memory and have the opportunity to say thank you to the hundreds of thousands of people who prayed for their protection and safe return. During her time of recovery, Gracia wrote, In the presence of my enemies, a riveting personal account of her and Martin's ordeal with the terrorists. This emotionally moving, powerfully inspirational account of faith through adversity landed on the New York Times bestseller list, and millions of people came to know Gracia in a more personal way. Now a much sought after speaker, Gracia travels throughout the country speaking to audiences about the lessons and spiritual truths she learned while in captivity and how God continues to sustain her and the children in the aftermath of Martin's death. Gracia continues to reflect on her ordeal and the lessons God taught her. To Fly Again features Gracia's most recent thoughts and reflections concerning the challenges we face when we lose control of some aspect of life and how we can find hope in God's grace. Gracia Burnham lived through a real nightmare of fear, captivity, physical trauma, and devastating loss. Yet she has survived the ordeal more convinced of God's grace than ever before. Gracia truly has lived in the presence of her enemies, and with God's help, has learned to fly again. Good morning. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. There was a long night in October while we were held captive. By that time, we'd been in the jungle for about five months, and we were getting to know the guys holding us captive, learning their stories. Some said they were coerced into becoming Abu Sayyaf members. You know, if a band of 30 Abu Sayyaf with their guns and machetes came through your village and asked for three volunteers, it's pretty likely that you would come up with three volunteers to send with them rather than to make these mujahid, these holy warriors, angry because everybody heard the stories of what happened when you didn't comply with the Abu Sayyaf that came through. Massacres, beheadings, looting. One kid had spent some time with Martin, I can't even remember his name right now, which bothers me a little bit. This kid was probably about 18 years old. His father was a poor fisherman. He had no education, but he fell in love with a girl in a neighboring village. And in their culture, the guy pays the dowry, the bride price. So his, her family was asking 50,000 pesos, $1,000 or so, which might be a whole lot for some of us to come up with, but how much more this kid whose family had nothing. So he decided to join the Abu Sayyaf in hopes that he would be around when a ransom payment was made and he could take his share of the money and go get married to his sweetheart. This particular night, we'd heard that the military was near, so we had mobiled long into the night. We walked till... 3.30, 4 in the morning, and we're just exhausted. We lay down in a field of grass to get some rest. There was dew on the grass. It was wet, but we didn't care. We would have laid anywhere at that point. 
Suddenly, the sky lit up almost like daylight, and a parachute opened up, and that light floated to the ground right near us. Anyone watching could have seen the whole group. Martin leaned towards me, and he whispered, Oh, no, they've found us. That was a flare. They were just confirming that we were here. And I expected to get us for us to get up and keep moving because one of the unwritten rules between the Abu Sayyaf and the military was they never had gun battles at night, but no one moved. We were exhausted. We couldn't go on. Early the next morning, right at dawn, we heard the rumble of what they called six-bys, six-by-sixes, huge trucks with flatbeds on the back, and we knew they were full of soldiers. And we got up and began moving out of this sheltered area to cross a valley into the jungle, and within minutes, we heard someone over in the trees yell, there they are, Hoy! it's the Abu Sayyaf, and the guns started blaring. Well, this is it, I thought, as we ran and dropped and ran and dropped. Our guards would tell us when to run, when to drop. There was automatic gunfire everywhere, the pops of rocket launchers, people yelling, the smell of gunpowder. Somehow we made it across that field and reached the edge of the woods and got behind some big, huge boulders. And the group started arriving and After a while, we went running down the trail into the jungle, and when we stopped an hour or so later for a rest, I heard that that kid, you know, the kid whose name I can't remember, was killed in the gun battle, shot in the gut with a 57 mortar, and I was devastated. Here was this kid. He just wanted to get married. Entering eternity without God, and I didn't want to think about it, and I couldn't help but think about it. And the horrible situation that we were all in and how things kept going from bad to worse for us. And I was so scared and depressed and I just sat there and bawled. (laughs) And then I thought, Gracia, you need to get yourself together. We're going to start walking again soon. And I started to thank God for all the good things he'd done for us that day. We were still alive. We weren't wounded. I had lost my big black burqa-type headdress that they were making me wear that was so oppressive that I just hated. It had fallen somewhere out on the field when we were running and dropping so I could feel the wind in my hair again. And I wonder if some of you here today were praying for me as I was working through that that day. Many of you have said, we prayed for you. God would prompt us to stop and pray, and I never want to pass up the opportunity to say thank you for praying for us. Every time you prayed, we needed it. That day as I sat cross-legged on the ground, I realized that in every situation, if you look, there's good because God's there in your situation, and he's good. No matter how hopeless things seem for you today, God can redeem your situation and give you peace. God has not abandoned you in your hard time. In fact, he's given you some precious promises. Listen to the word of God for you today. My grace is sufficient for you. Listen to the word of God for you today. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Listen to the word of God for you today. I am the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? No, nothing is too hard for our Lord. When you're in an awful situation, 
Look up. Keep trusting the one who made you and is working all things together for good for you. People sometimes ask me, what was the hardest thing about being a hostage? The hardest thing for me was I saw what I was really like. In one swift moment in time, everything I had except Martin was taken away from me. And when everything's gone and you're in an uncomfortable position, you see what's really in your heart. I was born into a loving Christian family. I became a believer in Jesus at an early age. I married this terrific guy who had an incredible gift of piloting airplanes, and we decided we wanted to make a difference in the world. So we packed up, and we left the American dream, and we went to the Philippines where Martin flew food and medicine and cargo and people into some of the most primitive places in the world, and I was a pretty good person. Thought I was anyway, but in the jungle, I came face to face with a gracia, I didn't want to see. I saw a me that I didn't even want to believe existed. I saw a hateful Gratia. There were days I hated those guys for what they were doing to us, for the pain they were causing our family. I saw a covetous Gratia. When we were starving and I saw someone with food and they ate it and didn't share it with us, I coveted what they had. I was filled with envy at them. I saw a despairing Gratia. Nobody cares about us anymore. This has gone on for so long, everyone's forgotten us. I saw a faithless Gratia. Here is a journal entry that I scribbled one day on some borrowed paper using a pen that barely worked, and this is not pretty. This was a very hard day for me. Why does God keep me here to suffer day after day? I got almost hysterical in the afternoon. Martin tells me not to give up. I've tried to be a good hostage and be patient, and where has it gotten me? Eight and a half months and still here. God is pleased to have me suffer, and I'm tired of it. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is a discerner that looks at our hearts and exposes us for what we really are. Nothing in all creation can hide from him. Everything's open and exposed before his eyes. And we might look together on the outside. And we might have a whole lot of props that keep life going well for us. Here in America, we've got lots of props, don't we? Beautiful homes, lovely families, careers, money. But God sees what we truly are on the inside. But God's good. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and he loves us. And he's on our side when we're weak and we're needy. And God didn't wait for me to get my act together there in the jungle. Even as I complained at him for keeping us there for so long, he started to work in my heart. I asked Martin one day, where is the love, the joy, the peace, the contentment? You know, all those things that are supposed to characterize believers in Jesus Where are those things? Because I'm looking at myself. I see the bad and the worse, and there's no good. And Martin said, love, joy, peace, those aren't things you can make happen in your own heart. Those are gifts from the Holy Spirit of God. Let's ask for them. Well, I tried and failed to find those things in myself for months. So we started to pray and ask God to work good things in us. And it seems like we were either running for our lives from the military for days and nights on end, totally exhausted, 
or we were in what we thought was a safe place and we were hiding out and we were laying low and we were totally bored. And every once in a while during those days and weeks of boredom, a magazine or something to read would make its way into camp. And we loved that. It gave us something to do. We especially liked Reader's Digest. We would read them till they fell apart. Martin would read them aloud to me. I would read them aloud to him. We really liked the jokes. And one day Martin read this one to me. It's called Writer's Block. Having encouraged her class of 11-year-olds to use descriptive language in the story she had just asked them to write, my wife was disappointed when one boy used the adjective big to describe a castle. She asked the boy to be a bit more creative and told him to rewrite the sentence. Minutes later, he was back at her desk. This time, the sentence read, I went into the castle, which was big. And when I say big, I mean big. We laughed too. A day or so later, Martin said, Gracia, I've been thinking about that joke and about something Jesus said. He said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. And I think when he said all, he meant all. He didn't mean all but the bad guys holding you hostage. And I watched Martin start to serve those guys. There was this one kid, 57 That probably wasn't really his name, but that's what we called him, 57. His job was to carry that M57 through the jungle. And M57 is heavy weaponry. It's a four or five foot long metal tube. And during a gun battle, it had this tripod thing they would put it on. And they would put the mortars in the front and shoot it, in our case, at the military. Well, 57 was always in a bad mood. I told Martin I called him 57 because for 57 days in a row, he'd been in a bad mood. One day, we were in a gun battle. We had some casualties. So did the military. The Abu Sayyaf killed a medic, a point man, and a radio man, which meant we gained a medical bag, a weapon, and a radio. Well, the next day when nobody was looking... Martin and I kind of went through that medical bag and we sort of lifted some things that we thought we were going to need in the future. Some pain reliever, some antibiotics, some anti-diarrhea medicine. And we hid that away amongst our stuff. Well, we learned that 57 suffered from headaches. That's why he was always in a sour mood. And every time we would see him start to rub his temples Martin would take him some of our stash of pain reliever. That kid's attitude towards us changed totally. Not long after that, they sent 57 out on a striking force. A striking force was a group of 10 or 15 guys who they would send to another area of the island we were on to wreak some havoc in order to keep the attention away from our group. And we never knew if we would see them alive again. Things didn't always go well for them. When 57 came back to camp, he was all smiles when he saw Martin. He gave him that two-cheeked Muslim greeting. As we prayed, God began giving us the victories within ourselves that we were desperately asking for. He changed us in the jungle. He gave us love for them. 
We began to be concerned for them. He used everyday occurrences to show us their neediness. Like a conversation I had with Nadim one day. Nadim was a young guy, probably 16, 18 years old. And he spoke enough English so we could communicate a little bit with him. One of the requirements of a Muslim is they're supposed to read their Quran every day. But when the Abu Sayyaf would read their Quran, they didn't read it silently to themselves like we would read a book. They read it aloud. Only they didn't just read it. They had this beautiful sing-song minor key kind of a chant that they did. And one would start in with his Quran reading and they would all think, oh, I haven't done my Quran reading today. They would all start in different books, different verses, different tunes I called it choir practice. I kind of figured if the military really wanted to find us and rescue us, they just needed to open their ears during Quran reading. One day after Nadim was finished reading, I asked him, Hey, what did you just read? And his eyes lit up. He said, Oh, I just read my favorite psalm. I said, Really? What does it say? He said, I, I, I don't know. It's in Arabic. I don't speak Arabic. I was shocked. I said, Nadim, you're reading words you don't understand. The reason it was his favorite psalm is he had read it so many times, he didn't have to think about it anymore when he read it. I said, you know what you need to do. You need to get a Quran that's been translated into your dialect, and then you'll know what you're reading. He said, oh, oh no, ma'am. Then it would be corrupted. And I realized that Nadim is basing his whole life and eternity on a book he's never read and is not likely to read. How's Nadim going to hear the gospel without a preacher? We need some preachers, some people willing to, the, to go to the hard places. Oh, duh. Maybe that's why we were in that situation, to be a witness to some lost guys. Do we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest as long as it doesn't inconvenience me and mess up my comfortable life? Here's a quote I found on Facebook of all places by a famous missionary, C.T. Studd, who could have had a comfortable life playing world-class cricket in England but instead chose hard places. He said, some people like to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Working within a yard of hell is not going to be a pleasant place. There will be lots of opposition there, but we need some people willing to go to the hard places, and hard places is what's left in the world. Maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach because they're isolated. There are some 2,000 language groups in our world who don't have any of the scripture in their language. Many have never had anyone come into their world and tell them anything. They don't know the basics of clean drinking water, much less what the gospel is. Working in hard places is what Ethnos 360 does. Ethnos 360 is the new name for the organization formerly known as New Tribes Mission. For 75 years, NTM, 
Ethnos 360 now, has been working in isolated villages, and there's still a lot to do. The job has to be done. The last tribe, the last man, and we need quality people to help us take the gospel there. You know, God has always picked certain people to do a difficult work. I don't have to convince you with this job. God's going to pick some of you. Do you have the faith, the courage, the urging to say, God, do you want me? Do you want my life? Do you want to use me to make a difference in the world? A long-term sign-me-up difference, not to go on a short-term mission trip, but a lifelong career missionary. And to some of you, God will say, yes, that's what I have for you. We need you on our team. Maybe a people group would be classified as hard to reach, not because they're isolated, but because of their ideology. They aren't going to be open to what you have to say, and it may not be a very safe place for you to live. But we need some people willing to go to the hard places. Maybe you aren't in a position where you can go, but you have a heart for the world, so you can pray. I heard someone say a while back, When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. You can have a worldwide ministry with any people group that you choose without ever leaving your living room. Pray, pray, pray. You've heard the phrase, prayer needs no passport. And prayer on this end is where the power comes from on the other end. A sweet Mennonite lady visited with me after I spoke at their church one day, and she said, Gracia, you know what I do at night when I can't fall asleep? I don't count sheep anymore. I count Muslims. One Muslim comes to Jesus. Two Muslims come to Jesus. Three Muslims come to Jesus. Oh, Lord, may it be so for your honor and for your glory. Four Muslims come to Jesus. You have heard that Muslims all over the world are coming to Jesus, haven't you? My friend in Iran says it's like God is running a special on Muslims right now. And I wonder if what's happening in the Muslim world is an answer to some sweet Mennonite lady's prayer of faith at night when she can't sleep. Pray, pray, pray. I want to give you an update on me and then tell you the rest of the story. There's always a rest of the story, right? I got a call two weeks ago when I was speaking in Michigan from the lead FBI investigator in charge of our case. He wanted me to know that they are closing our case. Since all the leaders of the Abu Sayyaf group that held us captive are dead now, Not all the Abu Sayyaf are dead, they're alive and well, but the leaders involved in our case are all dead, so it's time to close the case. Case closed, he said. That was great to hear. That's the second case that's been closed on my account. In the first case, though, I wasn't the victim of crime, I was the criminal. When I was a young child, I realized that I was a sinner. I had broken God's law, and the penalty for that is death. But then I learned that I've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, 
By faith, I accepted what Jesus did for me. So scripture says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. Which means the case folder labeled the sins of Gratia Burnham is settled as well. Case closed, forever settled. Because I have the seal of the Holy Spirit on my life, the case folder will never be opened again because he is faithful and true. Actually, if my sins were before me, it wouldn't be one folder, would it? But praise be to God, all my sins were laid on Jesus and I stand forgiven. A much more important case to have closed than the one I heard about a few days ago, right? Do you know that hymn? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, Grace that is greater than all my sin. The FBI is going to send an agent to bring some of Martin's effects that they found at that final crime scene to deliver to me in person. And I think we ought to have a Thanksgiving party at that point. Sort of like you have a Thanksgiving party when you meet here every week. Thank you, God, for closing the case on our sin and our death problem. We are so grateful. And I'm very grateful to have this kidnapping case closed as well. God's good. Well, you know some of the rest of our story, how for months it looked like our release was right around the corner, and then something would happen, and negotiations would break down again, and we would be back to square one again, and how that seemed like forever to us, and how Martin died in the gun battle that rescued me. But I got to come home and raise my children. I think we have family photos. Our kids weren't with us when we were taken hostage. They were with our friends, our neighbors on another island. We'd gone to work on Palawan. After we were taken hostage, the State Department and our mission agency sent them back to live with their grandparents in Kansas. They're grown now. My kids love the Lord. Uh, they're involved in ministry. That one is all of us at uh, VBS one night on the rare occasion that we're all together. That hardly ever happens. And the next one is me and my grandchildren. And God's been really, really good to us. And my kids and I have asked people like you all over the world to start praying for our captors. And why are we surprised when God does something awesome and answers our prayer? I don't know. Oh, me of little faith. The rest of the story. Several years ago, an American couple that works in a maximum security prison in Manila contacted me. They had gotten a hold of some comic books that our foundation printed, a comic book series, 13 comic books on the lives of the prophets, those men that Muslims believe to be prophets, Adam, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on through Jesus. 
I have a few of them here. We printed them in Taosug. Taosug was the language that many of the Abu Sayyaf spoke. So I have no idea what these say, but they sure are pretty. And we were so proud of them. They gave the comics away in the prison, and the guys loved them. They said, anything else you print, we want to read. But the interesting thing that's happened here is a bunch of guys found out Gracia Burnham printed these. They're coming to us saying, we're former Abu Sayyaf. We're the ones who held them captive. I said, find out their names. Maybe I know them. Here came the names. Sure enough, guys we walked with, starved with, lived with, 23 or so of them in prison for the rest of their lives. There's Zacharias, who on May 27 burst into our room at Dos Palmas with his M16 and took us captive. He was so surprised to find out that our youngest son and him had the same name, Zachary, Zacharias, that we would name one of our children after one of their Muslim prophets, and we just let him think that. Also in prison is Daoud, the guy that used to sit and talk with Martin when we would rest during our long days of hiking. Daoud's job was to carry the solar panels through the jungle. The solar panels would help charge the sat phones, the cell phones, so they could talk to the outside government negotiators. Daoud's wife and child had died in childbirth. And since the economy is horrible in the southern Philippines, he found himself with no family, no means of support. He joined the Abu Sayyaf almost as a career move. Martin and Daoud would discuss all sorts of things from jihad to uh, being shaheed, being martyred. They discussed Daoud's hopes and dreams. They talked at length about whether Jesus really raised from the dead or not. Also in jail is Bashir. He was shot in the same gun battle that Martin died in, the one that led to my rescue. Bashir was unable to keep up with the group as they retreated down the river, so they left him behind to fend for himself in the jungle with 500 pesos, $10. You can't take care of yourself in the jungle. You can't buy anything. And several days later, the military found him. Gangrene had moved into his leg. It had to be amputated. He sends me notes every once in a while. This American couple comes every other summer, and we plan projects to bless these guys in the prison. And one year they brought me this T-shirt that a bunch of the guys have signed. It says, Inmate Maximum. I said, Will and Joni, what am I supposed to do with that T-shirt? You can't wear it to the mall. To make a long, awesome story very short, so far, four former Abu Sayyaf, five. I heard of the fifth one two weeks ago. Five Abu Sayyaf have come to know Jesus as their Savior. One of them, a very violent man with over 20 counts of murder against him, a new person in Christ, a brother in the Lord. And we really can't believe what God's doing. And we just keep praying. And I wonder if you would want to pray when you think of me and my story. Pray especially for Zacharias, Zachary, who's very hard and resistant towards anything having to do with the gospel. God can do anything, can't he? And it's not over till it's over. And I think God's let me be a small part of what's going on there in the prison 
just to encourage my heart because he loves doing good things for his children. Had I known while we were going through our hard year in the jungle that one day even one of those guys would come to know Jesus because of our experience, I think the days would have been easier to bear. And I could kick myself now and say, would it not have been enough to trust a good God with the days of my life? Can we begin to believe that God takes us into hard situations not to crush us, but so that we can learn to see his hand and learn to trust him when he's doing a good work? And God's work is good. It's always good because he's good. And I've been encouraged that there can't be a harvest without seed planters. And maybe planting seeds isn't always fun. Maybe planting seeds for you is downright uncomfortable. You don't see any fruit for your labors. You might wonder why you were called to plant seeds because you're not even good at it. But all of a sudden you see what God's doing. And I've been reminded that the seed we planted in the jungle wasn't wasted. Others are reaping what we sowed ever so long ago. God can do anything. So keep planting those seeds, my friend, those seeds of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, the seeds that God promised will never return void. When you feel like giving up, when you don't see any fruit, when you don't know what you're doing, just keep on. It's God that's going to do the work on down the road. As I close this morning, can I tell you about Martin's gravestone? Martin always told us what he wanted on his gravestone. We all knew, the kids knew, and then he died. And it came time to go to the monument company and make some choices, and the kids said, Mom, you know what you have to do, right? But Grandma and Grandpa, Martin's mom and dad, will never allow it. I said, well, I'll go with Grandma and Grandpa. You stay home, you pray. I wish you could see his gravestone has a beautiful tropical scene on the front, mountains in the background, a Nipah tribal hut, has a Cessna aircraft landing on a short mountain strip by the little hut. It has Martin's name and his birth date and his death date with the cross in between those two dates to show that something very significant happened between them. On the back, in smaller print, in quotes... What Martin always wanted on his tombstone, it says, it wasn't pilot error. With his initials and a smiley face, Martin didn't want to die in an airplane crash that he caused. You pilots, you can relate. Martin loved what he did, and we are so proud of the monument to his memory. None of us knows the length of the race we're to run. We're not told in the beginning. And on every man's tombstone, there's a dash between the birth date and the death date. I've heard it referred to as the dash between the dates. Every tombstone has a small hyphen that represents a life. We only get one dash. No one gets two. There are no do-overs. And everyone dies. And I'm encouraged again to live a life worthy of the Lord. The only thing that will last in eternity is what you and I do for God here on earth. So let's make the dash that we're given one that really counts.
and thank you for having me today. God bless you.